Hello, it's the Bromley Buzz, and this time we're speaking from Gareth Bacon, MP for Orpington's constituency office. Uh, Darren Wheel here with uh, my co-host on the Bromley Buzz, Zina Narani. Hello. Hello. It's great to be out here. It is. In a and, uh, very different location for... And in Gareth's office, we've just been talking about a few of the uh, fixtures and fittings, yes. which <laughs> include ne- pictures of Nelson, Wellington and uh, Churchill. Yes, Indeed, very morning. nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or heroes. Yeah. Yes, you've inherited some things and have added some of your own. Uh, I have indeed, yes. Uh, in fact, everything in here is new. Um, I, I, I gutted the previous office and uh, replaced it with all brand new stuff. Um, and it's very me, uh, which is a comment that other people have, have made. So it's, it's mostly about you know, British history, um, you know, great British history, um, such as Waterloo and Trafalgar uh, and some of our heroes from the past. And you've been the MP for Orpington for a couple of years now, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> the purpose of this really is to give people a, a, a proper idea of Gareth Bacon MP and the and the role of uh, an MP. Uh, to, to start on that one, um, <coughs> your slogan on the big poster outside mm. in the road mm-hmm. is "Working hard for Orpington." Mm. Uh, now, some people might say and do that MPs don't work hard. Uh, mm. And uh, having been a civil servant myself, uh, worked to ministers, I know perfectly well they do work hard an awful lot of the time. Mm. Um, so uh, you do a lot here. Um, can you tell us about your upbringing and background? Um, well, I was born um, in Hong Kong. Um, my my parents, shortly after they got married, my father got a job uh, via the British Army working as a, a teacher in a British military school in Hong Kong. And uh, they were married in 1971, and I came along in 1972, and my sister joined us in 1973. Um, and so my first sort of two, three years of my life were, were there. I don't, unfortunately, have particular memories of Hong Kong, because we moved back when I was a very small child. Um, and we settled in, in Black Fen, um, in the London Borough of Exeter, so not far from, from here. Mm. Um, went to the local uh, primary school, um, went on to the local Roman Catholic secondary school in, in Sikhan. Um, they didn't put me in for the 11 plus, even though Bexley has grammar schools, which I think, with hindsight now, I would much rather have gone back in time and, and done the 11 plus. I think that would have been better for me. But the school that I went to obviously was Catholic. My family is Catholic. Um, and, and it played rugby, which was important to my father. Um, so I grew up, um, grew up playing rugby and Rugby was my main sport, but sport generally was a very big thing in my in my childhood. Uh, and from there, I, I went on, after my A-levels, I decided not to go to university at that time and went and worked in the city for a few years. Uh, three years, in fact. It was supposed to be, I, I thought I'd work for a year or 18 months, and, and it turned into three years. And I decided that if I was ever going to go to university before I was too old to do it, I should do it then. So I went to university at 21. Um, enjoyed it, um, stayed on to do a master's. Uh, and then came out and went back into financial services for a few years. Um, didn't really enjoy financial services, if I'm, if I'm honest. And then did a bit of a career change. And um, one of my colleagues, also friends from university, uh, had gone into financial recruitment and done very well um, and enticed me into that. And it, it similarly worked very well for me. Uh, and I did that for quite a number of years, rose to the level of, of director. Um, but simultaneously, I was getting involved in politics, initially with uh, local government and then later with the GLA. What did you actually do at university, study? Um, government and politics initially, um, that was my first degree. And that, that was a bit of a mixture of uh, law, um, history, um, social, social policy, um, and government and constitutional structure. 
Um, and then my master's degree was on European politics. And uh, I did that quite deliberately. So I started the master's in 1996 um, and finished it in 97. And I was particularly interested in the European Union because if you remember back to those days, that's when the, the Maastricht Treaty had been um, passed through Parliament during John Major's government. And it caused huge divisions in the Conservative Party primarily um, because it was the foundation of the European Union. If people remember, we, it used to be the European uh, Community. Um, and the, the thing about Maastricht was that it was the first thing that openly uh, pushed what was then the European Community towards a federal structure, a European Union, uh, which would involve a single currency and a massive transfer of, of sovereignty and power away from national parliaments into, into the centre. And, uh, and it caused huge amounts of controversy. And I wanted to, I, instinctively, I, I felt that I was Eurosceptic about all of this. And I wanted to find out if I was justified in, in doing that. So I did a, a European politics master's, which focused specifically on the European Union. Um, my final thesis was the question about whether the democratic deficit uh, was a real thing uh, and if it was uh, what should we do about it and uh, I concluded that it was a real thing that we couldn't fix it and that we should probably leave the European Union um, so in fact I was, I was a Brexiteer long before the term Brexiteer had ever been invented um, and I was very much I think at the time but it certainly wasn't government opinion um, either the outgoing uh, John Major Conservative government or at all the incoming uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown governments. Uh, and indeed, I, David Cameron was, uh, as we know from the referendum, was not in favour of leaving the EU either. Um, but it turned out the majority of British people were. So I like to think that I was a bit of a, a forerunner on some of that. Well, I was going to ask what took you into politics. And I think uh, that's yeah, the beginning that's of the down. answer, isn't it? Well, it, it, I mean, that's part of it. I mean, it, it started a bit earlier than that. When I was a teenager, <clears throat> I started to pay attention to politics. Um, I read a book by Geoffrey Archer called First Among Equals, which is about four politicians who, who get elected in 1964, and they're fictitious characters, but he interweaves their story with real uh, politicians that at the time and, and for the next sort of, 25 years, and you find out on the final line of the final page, one of them becomes Prime Minister, which is First Among Equals is Primus Inter Paris, which is Latin for First Among Equals, and it's the title they unofficially give the Prime Minister. Um, and I, I found it fascinating, unexpectedly fascinating. It, it started me thinking about politics. I was about 15 or 16 at the time. And I wrote to my local MP um, very precociously and asked him um, how, how one goes about becoming a member of parliament. And he invited me into his surgery. Now, my local MP at the time was Sir Edward Heath, who used to be the prime minister. And I, as a 15-year-old schoolboy, was absolutely staggered that I was mm -hmm. sat as far away from him as you are from me now, uh, for the, your, your listeners obviously can't see it but it's about two feet um, uh, and he was talking to me about politics I, I, I couldn't believe that he would give his time to me like that um, and that, that got me interested but it was sort of a latent interest until I went to university and then it sort of uh, kicked on from there It's interesting actually uh, MPs are more approachable than people might think uh, your predecessor Joe Johnson uh, did an interview for something else I was involved with with students of Newstead Wood School mm -hmm. uh, and people are often to complain about what MPs don't do mm. uh, well some of it is because they don't ask enough. I, I think you'll find I mean most members of parliament are very open to going and doing things like that I mean you mentioned Newstead Woods I was there a few weeks ago I spent an afternoon there um, the, it turns out, funny enough, that the, the head of sixth form at Newstead Woods turns out to be my brother's next door neighbour. Um, they live, they live uh, out in Kent. 
Um, and I met him at their, their village fireworks evening uh, last year. And uh, he said, you know, would you be prepared to come in and talk to my sixth formers? And I said, I would. Um, and they've just set up a, like a politics, philosophy and economics. They're trying to sort of set up a, a specialism in the school around those subjects. And they've hired a new teacher who, who did PPE at Oxford. And so I sat in on um, debating classes that they had. They have a school parliament. I sat in on that. Uh, I addressed the, the sixth formers in the school hall. And then we did a, a Q&A. There was um, a number of people on the panel, including um, some of their sixth formers themselves. Uh, and it was a really good experience because um, these kids are really switched on. They really know, um, you know, they're finding their way in the world, but they've got a very, um, they observe it very well. Um, and I, I got a lot from it. I enjoyed it. And um, I'm very happy to do more things like that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. I'm, a lot of more of this, it would be great to be seen within mm. the educational um, system as well. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, you, you will find, those children. I, I'm in no way uh, untypical of most members of parliament. Most MPs will happily accept invitations to do things like mm. that because um, engaging with all sectors of our constituency is something that most MPs habitually do. Mm. You know, any MP that forgets that it's their local constituency that elects them is um, heading for a short, sharp shock because if you neglect your constituency, you may find yourself not in parliament anymore. Um, and most MPs are there for the right reason. They want to try to improve the lives of people around them and, and to have an impact on the country. Absolutely. So take us through your first <clears throat> attempt to go for a political office. Uh, I know that you went to, into the GLA, for example, before the MP step as well, mm. the Greater London Assembly. Well, before the GLA, so I, I, my master's finished uh, at the end of 1997. I graduated in, in November 1997. And uh, this was a few months after Tony Blair had um, swept to power uh, and, and was absolutely untouchable. And I mean, I was a member of the Conservative Party, so you know, I th thought that um, it's, they need people like me to help the, the fight back. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that. And, and an opportunity arose almost straight away, which was the local elections in 1998. And the local Conservative Association were writing out, looking for people being prepared to be local candidates. And I'd never considered going into local government up to that point. Um, but I sat down and thought about it and thought, well, actually, that might be interesting. So I applied to get onto the approved list, uh, was interviewed, and, and that was OK. And then uh, managed to get selected for the seats, uh, the wards that I grew up in. Um, so my very first um, vote as a candidate, I, I was able to vote for myself, which was, was a nice experience. And uh, I duly got elected in 1998 to Bexley Council um, and remained a member of Bexley Council for 23 years um, and rose through the ranks. Uh, I was a cabinet member there for, for nine years. I was deputy leader for a while. Um, and that opened the door to all sorts of other things. Uh, that led directly to the GLA. Um, I was a bit lucky to get elected to the GLA in 2008. Um, there, there are two ways of electing London Assembly members. One is uh, through constituencies, very large constituencies. And one is on a proportional top-up list, and uh, I was on that initially. I was number three uh, on the London list in 2008. And in the two previous GLA elections, the Conservative Party had won one seat in 2004, uh, sorry, 2000, and then lost it in 2004. So to get three in one go was just not going to happen. So um, famously, I didn't even bother going to the count, um, because I thought there was just no chance of, of winning. And I got woken up at half past three in the morning by a very drunk campaign director from Central <laughs> Office who was in the back of a taxi leaving Boris's celebration party, uh, Boris having just been elected mayor, um, slurring down the phone to tell me that I had um, been elected and I thought it was a wind-up. 
Um, <laughs> well, at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I, I got out of bed and uh, and cracked open my laptop and had a look, and sure enough, um, I had, um, which was uh, very unexpected, I have to say, but also very interesting. I mean, it was my first exposure to to Boris Johnson, who was sort of a media phenomenon at the time, um, and it led to four very unexpected years. And I then got re-elected in 2012. They bumped me up to number two on the list in in, in 2012. And I got re-elected. Um, and then in, in 2016, I moved across to fill the vacancy in Bexley and Bromley because um, the previous member, James Cleverley, had uh, been elected to Parliament by that point. Um, and so I moved across to represent Bexley and Bromley, which was huge. I mean, it's six, six and a bit parliamentary constituencies within that. And it's, it's very, very large. Um, but it gave me exposure to Bromley politics. I'd had a lot of Bexley politics up to that point. Um, and it gave me exposure to Bromley uh, and without that, I don't think there's any chance at all that I would be the MP for Orpington today um, because I got to know the area, I got to know the people uh, and that was absolutely critical when the time came um, for me to get selected as the candidate when Joe Johnson decided to, to step down. I mean, how, how different would you say the Bexley politics is compared to the Bromley? There, there's, there's a huge difference or similarity? Well, there, there are some, there's a lot of similarity um, because obviously Bexley and Bromley are both on the outer edge of, of Greater London, um, obviously they're contiguous with one another. Um, the Crays, for example, so Footscray, which is over in the, the Bexley side of the A20, and St Paul's Cray and St Mary Cray on this side, um, there's a lot of, of similarity between those. And obviously both boroughs uh, have got lots and lots of green space. Um, people that live in the boroughs, a lot of them commute into central London uh, to work. Um, a lot of them like living in uh, safe places with decent schools, etc., etc. Um, so there's a lot of, of overlap. There are some differences in the councils. Uh, they're both strongly at the, at the present time. Obviously, we have local elections coming up, but they're both strongly conservative councils. Um, albeit both of them had opposition uh, leadership uh, for four years in the 23 years or so since I first got elected. Um, Bromley, I think, is, is a slightly uh, wealthier place than Bexley. I think the land values in Bromley are higher. Um, both of them suffer from not having um, direct tube links, for example, into central London. They both have train links, which takes the land value down. If, if, you, if you built a tube extension into Bromley or Bexley, you'd immediately raise the level of the, the land values, uh, which may or may not be a good thing for the people that live there. Um, but I think because Bromley's got um, higher land values, it has a higher council tax take. So the, the financial viability of Bromley Council is stronger than Bexley. But there's, but there's more that they have in common, I think, than, than separates them. Um, but the and the, the conservative parties in both uh, have a lot of similarities. There are some differences. I have to say, I found it a refreshing change uh, getting involved in Bromley politics, having been so involved in Bexley politics for such a long time. And I'm I'm very happy now to be on this side of the fence. Great. Very good uh, <laughs> lead into the next question. Actually, yeah. uh, just what is the uh, MP for Orpington's fence anyway? What's the constituency cover? Because I know there's a bit of diversity to where you have. It's, yeah. Well, it's, it's very large. It's, it's the largest constituency in, in Greater London. Uh, and it stretches right out from Biggin Hill um, out to the Greys um, and, and everything in between. And, and it's very, very different. Um, I took my daughter and her boyfriend out for dinner yesterday um, to a pub called the Old Jail, which is up by Biggin Hill. And to get to the Old Jail, uh, you're driving up and down country lanes for several miles looking at, I mean, we went past a field full of deer. Um, which you know you have to look at this stuff and think I'm in Greater London because you really don't look like you're in Greater London it looks very much like the Kent countryside which of course in, in many respects is what it really is 
Down Village as well is, is another place where, you know, it's, it's almost like a place that time forgot. You, know, you feel like you're going back in time when you go there. And then you've got built-up areas like Wilkinson Town Centre, um, where a lot of the housing is. If you looked at an aerial photograph of my constituency, you would see an awful lot of green, because a lot of it is. Um, I mean, obviously, Biggin Hill Airfield uh, is, is situated in, in just rolling farmland. Um, so it's a very large and also very... Um, it's very spread out, I think. I mean, one of the things we've got, the Boundary Commission proposals um, are looking at uh, all of the parliamentary boundaries in the country, and the target is to get to um, a minimum of, of 72,000, I think. No, it's, it's about 70,000 voters per constituency. And although geographically, Orpington is the largest constituency in Greater London, sorry about that, um, in terms of population, it's actually a bit light. So it needs to have more people added to it to get it to where it needs to be. And that's because it's so spread out, because there are there's so much greenery in it. Um, it's, I mean, it's a lovely constituency. I, I, I love it because it's, it's got a, a whole load of contrasts in it. Um, but, you, you, I mean, you can have country living in Orpington but still be uh, half an hour from central London by train, which is, is just marvellous, really. Well, here's the, the question for a lot, a lot of people simply do not understand what an MP does. Mm. What does an MP do? Well, first and foremost, uh, an MP is a representative uh, of, of their local constituency. Now, Orpington has about 68,000 electors in it at the moment. It would not obviously be possible to uh, do anything that you can get all 68,000 people to agree on. Um, so you're not a delegate, um, you are a representative. So you will take an interest in things that matter to your local area. Um, and constituents will write to members of parliament on a whole range of subjects. And it could be um, they, uh, one of the things at the moment is visas and Ukraine. Um, we've had a, a number of people um, trying to host Ukrainians, um, who Ukrainian refugees. Other people, there was one case where a Ukrainian national who's been living here for 20 years got stuck in Ukraine and, and um, his family were trying to get him home. Um, it could be um, problems they've got with uh, their roads, their hospitals, their, their NHS care, a whole range of things. Um, and they will look to their MP to help them. Now normally if, if someone gets in touch with their MP because they need help, it's because at their end of their tether they've tried everything and they, they can't find a way of unblocking the system. And although an MP, I mean I couldn't for example give orders to Bromley Council and say do this and know that they will do it, um, but I can um, get people to take my calls and I will be able to get meetings with people and talk to people and apply pressure. I can also liaise with government ministers and senior civil servants. The, the chap that I was talking about who got stuck in Ukraine um, I managed to get a meeting with the Ukrainian ambassador uh, to try to get him to unblock the system. Now, fortunately, that meeting ultimately was not required because um, the, the guy managed to get out of Ukraine and is, is now safely back in Orpington, which is, is very good news indeed. But things like that, I mean, I've never met the Ukrainian ambassador. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that I was so-and-so MP meant that he would be willing to meet me and I was going to take this man's wife with me uh, to talk to him uh, to see if we could unblock the system. Um, now things like that is where you can you can use influence to make things happen, um, and it can be I think very rewarding doing that. Uh, and skipping ahead on the questions, mm -hmm. of course, you have a national role of voting uh, and expressing your opinion in <coughs> Parliament, mm -hmm. and and uh, the curious term which I want to use being whipped every so often. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I mean, members of Parliament, as well as well as being representatives of their constituencies, they are also legislators. So. Um, Legislation law has to go through both houses of parliament and then be signed off by the Queen before it become before it takes legal effect. 
And so a lot of what an MP's time will be spent doing is scrutinising proposed legislation and also holding the government to account. Now, this is interesting because, I mean, I'm a Conservative MP, the Conservative Party is in government. People often mistakenly assume that that means I'm a member of the government. Um, and by dint of being simply being an MP, you're not officially. Um, you are if you go onto what they call the payroll. Now, I now actually am because I'm a parliamentary private secretary, although that's an unpaid position, even though they call it payroll, it's, it's not being paid. Um, but as, a, as a, a backbench MP, what a lot of MPs will do is scrutinise legislation and hold the government to account. So uh, all ministers, um, I mean, you, everyone sees Prime Minister's Question Time, which takes place every week. But once a month, every department also has to face questions in the House of Commons, and questions come from both sides of the House. It's not just from uh, from the opposition. So members of Parliament will get involved in what goes on in there. Um, there'll be debates on, on issues of, of interest as well, which MPs will get involved in. Whipping um, <coughs> is, is an unfortunate description, um, because uh, no one actually gets whipped. Um, that's the first thing I need to, need to put on the table. Um, it's what whipping refers to is party organisation uh, and all, all parties have a whips office and their job is to organise uh, what their parties are doing in Parliament. Uh, if you're in government it's really about making sure that legislation uh, proceeds smoothly and it's a two-way function. There's a pastoral function from the whips as well so if an MP has issues or concerns or worries um, they will often talk to their whips and their whips can be uh, helpful in facilitating solutions to that. Um, so it's not as sinister as it sounds. Um, there are all sorts of colourful um, stories about whips, um, some of which are quite uh, unpleasant stories, but I, I haven't witnessed or seen anything unpleasant uh, when the whipping operation comes into, into mind. Uh, right, so you've got the role of uh, parliamentary... Uh, Private secretary. Thank you. Has that got a specific brief? Yes, um, I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg's parliamentary private secretary. Um, and his, so originally I was, I was a PPS at the Department of Work and Pensions um, and I got moved to uh, work for Jacob uh, about three weeks ago. Um, in the last reshuffle, um, he had a new role carved out within the Cabinet Office to look at Brexit opportunities uh, and government efficiency. Um, and as a Cabinet Minister, uh, he needed a, a parliamentary private secretary, which he didn't have. There are other PPSs in the Cabinet Office that serve the other ministers there. Um, but he requested one um, specifically targeted at him because his, his brief is going to be quite wide-ranging. Um, and they asked me to fill that role. Um, so I'm about three weeks into that, which is, is, is quite interesting. And rolling backwards here, you came into the uh, Orpington constituency and being elected at quite an interesting time. Uh, I did. Challenges. Yes, there were many. Um, and, and, and it turned out there were a lot more that we didn't expect. Um, so at the time, obviously, that I was selected, the, the big, I mean, the 2019 election was the Get Brexit Done election. Um, as we know, for, for two years, Parliament had been completely paralysed. The Conservative Party had lost its majority. Um, and it, it itself was struggling to reconcile uh, the need to implement the outcome of the referendum um, in a hung parliament, because uh, some Conservative MPs um, didn't, I don't think, support uh, the way of doing that, um, whereas others did. And, and the only way to really unlock that logjam was a, a general election with a decisive outcome. And, and that is ultimately what happened. Um, the Conservative Party got uh, a large majority. Um, Brexit has now occurred. Um, but of course, shortly after the election, uh, we went straight into something that nobody living today has ever seen, which is, of course, the pandemic, which has turned everything on its head. And as a new MP, uh, it was a uh, quite a, a baptism of fire, really, because uh, 
at the time that we went into lockdown, um, I was about to say that people, you know, we were all still finding our way around the building. We, we'd pretty much done that. Uh, we, we did kind of know how to find our way around the building, but we didn't really know how to be MPs yet. And um, as you can imagine, our inboxes were filling up with very frightened constituents who really didn't know uh, what was what, you know, how were they going to keep their businesses alive, were they going to be able to keep their homes, mm. uh, what kind of financial support would be available to them. And the situation was changing day by day by day uh, as more and more became uh, known, uh, we knew more about the virus. Um, and my job um, was really signposting people and trying to help them get answers to very pressing, very urgent questions. And I and my staff, all of whom we knew, were having to do this remotely. Um, because we couldn't be in the same room together because of lockdown and everything. everything. So that, that imposed its own strain uh, on the system. So it was a very intense period, and it, and it seemed to have no end. I mean, no one knew when we were going to be starting to meet in person again and start to live our lives again. So it's, it's not the introduction to Parliament I would have chosen, uh, I'll be honest, um, but it did teach us a lot at the same time. So uh, in, in some ways, some good has come from it. Sorry, I was just going to say, you know, with all of this happening, because um, I'm very passionate about sort of the mental health and well-being side mm. of um, the aspects. I mean, how was that for you and your staff around you coping with that, and obviously the emails and things that you're getting in through all the people outside? Um, for me, I mean, it was it was it was tough, but it, it was okay. I mean, I'm, I'm I, mentally, I think I'm reasonably strong. I mean, I'm, I'm very much from the this is in front of you, you've got to get on with it, sort of school of thought. So we didn't really have time. So, I mean, I was frustrated because I wasn't doing the job I thought I was going to be doing. And, uh, you know, that was that was quite worrying. But then, frankly, some of the constituents that I was having to deal with um, faced far bigger concerns than that. And, you know, they're turning to me for help. So I didn't really have time to mm-hmm. sit there and mope about my own situation. I had to try and help other people with theirs. With my staff, um, I made sure that we had regular catch-up calls um, initially we were doing conference calling before we mastered zoom and teams and things <laughs> like that and all the you're on mute stuff um, because we had to make sure we were staying in touch to make sure the work was organized but also to make sure everyone was okay because um, sometimes some of the stuff that comes into an MP's inbox uh, can be quite unpleasant um, and you need to make sure that people maintain a sense of perspective over some of these things and, and that you don't sort of get dragged down because um, you know if, if hundreds of people write in angrily about this or that mm. um, sometimes you can get a bit fed up with it um, and it's good to sort of maintain and leaning on each other can actually help and for me personally when we were allowed back into parliament I could go in and uh, mix with uh, other MPs other colleagues um, I found that quite a lift actually because I, I suddenly realized that actually it's not just me everyone's facing stuff like this um, and we could then start mm. sharing experiences and, and exchanging notes almost uh, and that was quite a good stress reliever um, you know, it's 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 hard sitting by yourself. And the other thing I found very difficult was um, having to sit in my study at home with my laptop, uh, working there because I, I like to go home and shut the door and leave everything outside. Mm. And when your home becomes your workplace, your workplace problems are in your home, and so everything you see is a problem. Uh, so you don't have a refuge anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I, I dislike the whole work from home thing. I, I, when we were allowed to. Uh, work or to, to go out and, and go to work but work remotely and in the case of so so probably from January of last year um, members of parliament were on proxy votes so I would go in if I got onto the order paper and I was for a question or a speech or whatever I'd go and do it in the house comments you had the option of doing it online but I would go in and do it 
other than that, because I didn't have to vote in person, someone could vote for me, um, I didn't go in because uh, you know, we had um, COVID restrictions, etc. So what I did, I came here um, because I wanted to feel like I was going to work. So I came into this room and I'd bring my laptop and I'd, I'd log in and I'd, I'd work here and then I'd go home. Um, and that broke my day up and, and meant that my work problems were in this room rather than in my house. Um, and that was one of the ways I tried to deal with the, the stresses of that situation. I think that's really important. I mean, you know, it's a great message for everyone out there because <clears throat> that's one of the hardest things to compartmentalise, you know, your life and your work. I mean, I've, you know, many people didn't have that opportunity to mm. go anywhere else, but having to jump Indeed. so many things. And if you can, even if it's taking your laptop to, I don't know, the garden or to the park for a bit, and, yep. but then you don't have the internet. And <laughs> it's just it's a problem, <laughs> it's isn't all it? all those things, isn't it? I, think, yeah, no. I, I mean, I agree with that. And, I, mm. you know, I, I hope we never, ever go back to a situation where we have to... Um, do that I mean people are social beings in general yeah, uh, yeah. and one of the things about politics is all about people if, if you don't like people you shouldn't be in politics um, <laughs> and not seeing other people it really brought it home to me and some of the people who were writing to me were telling me that they're living in one bedroom flats mm-hmm. um, you know they, they've got nowhere to go you know they, they, it, um, people forget that I mean the first couple of weeks of lockdown in, in 2020 the weather was not that great but then from about May onwards it got very very hot if you remember and, you know, I mean, all the dogs in the country must have been the fittest they've ever been because people were sort of going out and walking their dogs endlessly. <laughs> but for those people without dogs or people living in, in you know, confined spaces, um, having to deal with hot temperatures, very uncertain future, no leisure activities, mm. um, it, it was really difficult. And, um, you know, we did what we could do to help. But, I mean, in, in, other than trying to sort out people's financial situation and support, there's not a lot you can do about that yeah. side of things. And... You know, it, it's left a scar on the nation and the world, frankly, and um, it will take some time to get over. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole thing tackling um, loneliness has always been an issue. Um, I mean, uh, um, Asia Cuthbert is um, the lead on that mm. for Bromley. Very good. <clears throat> and it, it, it's absolutely massive, but I think this has brought out a lot more on the, on the loneliness side of things. I think it has. Bromley and does have a huge population of elderly that are lonely. Yeah, uh, one of the other good things about COVID um, is, because uh, there's, there's loads of bad things and we could spend all day talking about mm-hmm. the bad things of COVID. The good things are about how some people have, have really stepped up to help other people. Um, and I did a thing in the, in the first summer of COVID uh, called Orpington Heroes and I, I asked people to nominate local people uh, for stuff that they were doing and there was all sorts of things. Um, you know, it really, some of it's really, really touching I and mean, all of it's mm-hmm. good because all of it is people going out of their way to help their, their local um, you know their fellow citizens who might be in some strife I mean one man uh, went out and cleared up uh, one of the local parks um, he'd go out daily yes, uh, and, and clean up because people were using the park more and, and it wasn't getting cleaned up properly so he did it himself and you know little things like that are so thoughtful and make such a difference to other people um, and I found that really quite touching and encouraging um, you know the, the, the Petswood Business Association the, the leader of that did huge amounts of work to support the local businesses in and around Petswood. And this is the kind of stuff that keeps people going, uh, you know, through a very uncertain time. And, um, and so I, I was really pleased to see some of that stuff. You know, there's a whole load of good things that people were doing, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, out of the kindness of their hearts for their fellow citizens, even though they themselves were, were suffering. Um, and so stuff like that actually restores your faith in humanity. Absolutely. There's other things that happen that make you doubt uh, yeah. humanity, but stuff like this restores it. look at it. the greatness that's out there. And yeah. It does, you know, 
incidents like this bring the community together, brings people together. It does, it does. And I think the other thing, I mean, some of the businesses have been very innovative. I mean, COVID has sort of forced it on them. In order to survive, they're doing things they wouldn't even have thought about. Uh, and in some cases, they are retaining um, the, the innovations that they put in, mm-hmm. even though we're now sort of back to normality. Uh, and that's been encouraging. So trying to find the positives from a difficult situation sometimes can be very difficult in itself, but actually it can be done. And, uh, you know, there are positives that have come out of this. Tell me, currently, um, you've got a constituency of 68,000 people. What kind of volume of emails and letters on a daily basis does that give you? And what's hot at the moment? Well, letters, um, not so much. Uh, we, we do get some um, letters, some handwritten ones, which actually sometimes are quite hard to decipher, I'll be honest. Um, it's mostly email. So I, I was speaking to a, a far more experienced member of the House um, who, who was a member of Parliament back in the 90s, um, right through to now. And uh, he was saying that when he first got elected, on average, MPs would get about 35 to 40 letters a week. Uh, and they'd come in. And, and the term Green Ink Brigade comes from those days. And the Green Ink Brigade is someone who's really furious about something and they tend to write the letter, hand write the letter in green ink. And that was always a bit of a, a warning sign that this is going to be one of those, one of those letters. Um, but uh, so 35 to 40 letters they were getting then. I, I get on average about 300 emails a day. Um, and it can be a whole range of things, um, not all from constituents. So a lot of the time it might be people lobbying me about this or that. Um, you get things called campaign emails, and there's a, a website called 38 Degrees, which campaigns on various different things. Uh, and all people need to do there is put in their address and their name and click on it, and it will automate an email which goes into an MP's inbox. And MPs will see these things, and they're all worded exactly the same way. I was shocked to see XYZ. Um, I demand that you do ABC. Um, and you'll get you know, a, a whole number of emails written in exactly the same way, which is how you identify this as a campaign email. Um, but then you get people writing in on their own account about all sorts of things. Um, and we reply to everything. Um, so every constituent, we, we always ask um, uh, for their name and address because I need to know they're actually a constituent because there's a, it's a convention rather than a written rule that a member of parliament can't act on behalf of another member of parliament's constituent. So if somebody's outside my constituency, um, I'll write back to them saying, I'm very sorry, but actually you're... It very often happens to be Bob Neill's constituents because um, part of the Crays, um, it's in Cray Valley uh, West, uh, the ward at the moment, uh, which it, it's, it's a funny place because it's, it's landlocked by the railway line. It's by St Mary Ferry Station. And um, south of the railway line, uh, they are in Orpington in the sense that their address is Orpington, but they're actually part of Bromley and Chislehurst because of the way the constituency boundary is. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, I live in Orpington, and they'll Google who's in Orpington, that's Gareth Baker, and they'll write to me, and we'll look their address up and say, well, actually, I'm very sorry, but you're actually in um, So we'll always check that first. But, I mean, it's a whole range of issues that they'll write to me about. I think one of the, the more... Um, one of the heavier issues uh, in recent weeks has been the uh, proposed redevelopment in the Walnut Centre. Uh, Walnuts uh, Centre. Um, we had a lot of traffic on that. Um, I, I was doing a survey on it anyway because it's a very large planning application which would have a very big difference uh, to the town centre. And I did a, a survey on my website asking people to give me their views, um, deliberately not leading them in either direction. Uh, and people did complete that but they also wrote to me as well um, some of them did both um, we stripped those out having stripped them out so we didn't double count anyone over a thousand people contacted me about that um, most of whom lived in and around the surrounding roads from the town centre um, and you know it got a lot of people uh, very interested in a local issue and, and so that took um, some time um, 
and uh, I responded to the council's consultation um, formally um, and wrote back to because initially I was writing back to them all saying council's doing consultation you really need to write to the council as well as me I'll publish my uh, response in due course but that, that was an issue that probably more than any other issue I think that's that's been the one that people have written to me about and you have actually declared your stance on this one as well now. I have. I, I, um, so the application, there are good things in the application. Uh, if it went through in its current form, it would change things uh, in some positive ways for the town centre. Economically, uh, the town centre would benefit very significantly because there would be a lot more people living in the town centre. There would be a lot more uh, housing in the town centre as well. Um, however, said against that, it, it's the size and the massing of it, it would, it, it's completely alien to what's there at the moment. Um, and I weighed a lot of this up and I, I worry a lot about the parking implications of this um, and the, the cumulative impact on local people that live here already. Uh, for people that will be moving here, it would be great because there'd be more housing. But people that already live here, who've chosen to live here, it would be a very big impact on them. And, and I tried to weigh it up and I looked at the, the Bromley local plan. And as with every planning application, some of the policies in the plan it probably satisfies and there are others that it doesn't but that's true with every planning application you have to weigh them against each other and ultimately I, I came down against it because I just think it's just too big um, I think it would have too much of a lasting impact um, and I think the negatives outweigh the positives um, and so I wrote uh, a four page letter in response to the consultation and, and opposed the application um, the application I suspect won't be heard until much later in this year I mean I think it's now been set for July um, but I'd be surprised if it was done that quickly because there's, I mean, the volume of response to the council's consultation was very significant, and the council have to go through all of them. Mm. Um, they've then got to weigh everything. They've got to to write their report, and the committee will need to hear it. And of course, we've got the local elections right in the middle as well, so that will slow things down. But yes, I, I came down against. But uh, you know, I, I, I've met the developers. They they came in to see me uh, very soon after I got elected. And, you know, they're proposing to spend half a billion pounds in my constituency. It'd be odd if they didn't want to meet me. It'd be equally odd if I refused to see them. And so I, I met them a number of times. Um, you know, they, they believe in what they're trying to do, and I understand that. Uh, I just don't agree that it would have the, the benefit, the net benefit to the constituency that they do. Well, time will tell uh, what happens there and whether they change their proposals and what you think at the time. Mm. But given the fact that our ethos is very much on the positive side, yeah. mm. uh, let's talk about some of the highlights of things that uh, you've done and seen uh, in Orpington and things you love about it. Uh, one thing I can start with anyway is under your personal interest, as we learned before, because we interviewed at Orpington FC we did. Um, on a lovely day. Mm. Uh, you love your sport. You've introduced us to the Blackheath and Bromley Harriers as well. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, as I said earlier on, I, mean, I grew up um, playing lots and lots of sport. I, I don't do so much anymore because, well, in fact, I don't do anything because my knee is, is, is a bit of a mess. Um, but yeah, I, I love sport. Sport's fantastic. Not just because it's good fun to, to be involved in, but there, there are so many community benefits to, to organised sport. Um, regardless of the sport, it could be football, it could be rugby, it could be tennis, squash, um, or cricket. You know, they can add a lot of value to the local community. And Orpington Football Club, uh, I got involved with them. So my predecessor, Joe Johnson, was the honorary president of Orpington FC. And uh, at my very first surgery, uh, a man called Lawrence Col Colville came in to see me. And uh, he said, oh, this will be a very quick meeting, he said, because I just want to ask you, a, you can give me a one-word answer. Uh, your predecessor used to be our honorary president, would you like to um, replace him? Um, and I said, absolutely, um, uh, you know, what's involved? And he said, 
not a lot, he said, but <laughs> just, just come along and see us from time to time and, you know, uh, help out, you know, wherever you can. Um, he said, but we, we like having the MP's name on, on the letterhead. And I said, certainly. And I've been down to visit them many times. And I was taken aback, as I said on the, on the podcast, by just how much they do. Uh, just how many kids uh, take place, uh, take, take, uh, play football there at weekends, and how much commitment these volunteers put in. They're there all weekend. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And it ranges from sort of six and seven year old boys and girls right the way through to, to adults and veterans. Um, and they have loads of value, tons. And they're literally across the park from um, somewhere that I'm very at home, which is, is, of course, Western Park Rugby Club or rugby in general, because that's what I grew up doing. Um, and you know they, they, it's, it's so similar, different sports, but very similar in terms of just adding loads back into society and into local communities. Um, and getting involved in that is, is great. I mean, uh, Norman Park, um, the, the uh, Blackheath and Bromley Harriers, that's not in Orpington, that's over the way in, in, in another part of Bromley. But I got involved with them uh, when I was at the GLA because they were trying to, um, they had a building project on, on the site of the Norman Park um, athletics track, which is, it's been made famous really because that's where Dina Rasha Smith um, still trains, but trained her whole life, um, who of course is the women's world 200 metre champion. Um, and they wanted to do something that would be very much for the community use and they were finding all sorts of bureaucratic hurdles being placed in front of them. Initially, and this is the reason they, they got in touch with me from the Mayor of London's office, but then there were a few log jams within Bromley Council as well. Um, which have now been unblocked and, and their building projects is proceeding and, and it's, it's getting reasonably close to completion. Um, but again, it was all about volunteers putting stacks of, of um, stacks back into lo- their local community. And that kind of thing is always going to get my attention. Um, you know, I understand sport and I understand what it gives back, but any community engagement which is putting things back into the local society is, is stuff that I think is just fantastic. Yeah, because when Zena and I were at Orpington FC seeing you, uh, we were looking at the, the fields covered with more or less 400 odd people plus mm-hmm. doing their thing on the Saturday. Uh, they had the special educational needs um, mm-hmm. young people playing yeah. as well, uh, the women's teams, mm-hmm. and um, you were there to speak to the young leaders. That's right. uh, and Zena is going to be doing something with the young leaders in her capacity as mental health and wellbeing coach as well. Uh, and just imagine a world where those things, or in Orpington, mm-hmm. where those things aren't there. It's mm-hmm. really important. Oh, it really is. I mean, the young leaders at Orpington, I mean, they're, they're aged, aged between 14 and 20, um, which is very young. And, you know, I've, I've had a, a bit of a milestone birthday in the last week or so. Um, and I fondly remember the dim and distant days of when I was 20. But, I mean, if you're, if you're in your late teens, um, to an eight-year-old, you're basically a grown-up. And, and you can have a profound influence on how that eight-year-old thinks and what they do and what they think about themselves and what they believe they're capable of. Um, and these young people are doing all of this, and well, they, they do get paid to do it, but uh, you know, a small amount. But they're they're doing it because not for the money; they're doing it because it adds a lot into the experience, and they will be remembered by these young children that they're steering um, for many, many years. Uh, I mean, I can remember coaches that I had um, playing rugby when I was eight, nine, ten, um, to this day. Um, because they made a difference and uh, that's what these people are doing there and, and they're, they're learning for the next generation so some of these eight-year-olds that are being coached by these 15, 16 year olds will themselves be coaching other people in seven or eight years time um, and I think that's just marvellous I mean I, I love watching that develop um, and the commitment of the people at the, at the football club is just extraordinary uh, it really is 
um, quite humbling sometimes to be around them and listening to their ideas and what they're doing and how they're doing it and just the sheer positivity of everything that they're doing I think it's fantastic. So what else have you um, enjoyed of late or um, particularly like around Orpington you might like to throw in? I do have one up my sleeve. Ah. <laughs> okay ah yes um, there's, there's so much I mean I think um, in the last summer when uh, we had uh, Priory Live in Priory Gardens and on the same day they had Petswood Calling, um, which is a similar sort of thing. It's a music festival, one in Petswood and one in Priory Gardens. And I went to both of them, I went to Priory Gardens in the morning and, and Petswood Calling in the afternoon. And it was the first community engagement events that we'd had since the pandemic had struck, mm-hmm. where for the first time I saw people mixing without having to wear masks, you know, without having to socially distance, without all of the things that had been imposed on people for, at that point, 18 or so months' time. And it was just so good to see people positively interacting with each other again. And I, I thought this is really, really excellent. Um, I think the one you've got up your sleeve is the um, Children's Business Fair, which took place a couple of weeks ago in the Walnuts. Um, that was marvellous. Um, I, I got invited along there by Orpington First, which is the business improvement district um, in Orpington Town Centre. Um, and they explained what the concept was, which is that um, primarily the, the children there came from Warren Road Primary School, but other schools had been invited. And the idea was that the children would have their, their own business plans, they were going to work out what, they, what pro- some of them made their own products, what products they were going to make and sell, and what they were going to do with the money. And at one stall, I mean, I went in and I, I managed to pop to the cash point on the way in, which is a very wise move, because <laughs> once you're talking to very young children about the products that they've got a lot of time into making, if you don't then buy some of those products, you look like a complete meanie. So um, I very quickly unloaded myself, or unloaded my wallet, uh, and came home with all sorts of goodies. Um, but one of the stalls uh, is a, a young girl who was, she'd, she'd made things like scrunchies and bags and other things which she'd coloured. Um, she'd put dyes and things on them in very interesting designs. All of the money was going to Ukraine to support, uh, to support Ukraine. She wasn't taking any of it for herself. Um, and that was fantastic. And her father was sort of hovering nearby but letting her get on with it. So she was talking to me and uh, I'm not sure if she knew who I was actually. So I'm not sure how intimidating that was. But she was really good. And so many of these children did great things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought a plant from, uh, there was a plant stall, and uh, I think it was a nine-year-old boy, two nine-year-old boys, nine or ten, uh, were running it. And they had a whole load of stuff. And I said, did you grow all of these? Oh, no, no. I think, he said, I think he said his uncle had a florist or something. I said, I got all these on sale or return. I thought, well, he's a nine-year-old knows yeah, about sale or return. Sale return. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't matter if he doesn't sell them. And, and I said, well, how much money have you made? And he opened his cash box. It was brimming with notes. <laughs> um, and I said, what are you going to do with all that? He said, well, he said, I might, I might buy more stock for the next event. I thought, this guy's nine or ten. He's a mm. boy. Anyway, I bought a massive great plant, which is now my office in Westminster, uh, and thriving. It's on my windowsill. It's doing very well. Um, that was terrific. It, it was like a, a school fair, I suppose, but better than that, because it was all the children involved in this had really thought about what they were doing, uh, and it was heaving with people. It was absolutely bursting, uh, and I think probably quite a lot of money exchanged hands on that day. And I think those those children probably learned quite a lot and they enjoyed it as well. You could see they're all enjoying themselves. Things like that, I just think, are brilliant. I, I, can, I can actually verify this information because uh, I was told on the rumour mill, oh yes, Gareth Bacon's been in, he came out with loads of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I wonder if this uh, I have here, which I bought for Zena at the fair myself, is <laughs> one of the things you were just talking about. This is a, a tote bag. 
Yes. Being sold. Yeah. There you go, Z. Um, don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. It's it's really good. I mean, some of this stuff is is just so creative, and when you think about the age of the children producing it, it's it's. I just thought it was fantastic. Um, it was it was such a good investment of my time to mm-hmm. go and see this stuff. Again, it's, this is all about you know you, the faith in humanity angle that I was talking about earlier on. So many people are capable of so much good stuff, a lot of which goes under the radar. Um, and one of the good things about my job, and there, there are other sides to the job, but the, the good thing is that you get to see so much of the A side, so people doing good things, mm-hmm. um, often with no hope of reward for themselves. Um, and I find that quite inspiring at times. I, I think this is absolutely wonderful. I mean, unfortunately, like I said, I wasn't able to go because I was down with COVID at the time. <laughs> but I saw all the posts and the pictures. But it, it gives the children such an opportunity to do things that they normally wouldn't get a chance to do when they're in school mm. because it's so sort of curriculum orientated and you've got to meet targets, this and This gives them the opportunity to grow yeah. and really shine in their skills mm. and their abilities, what they have. And actually kind of grandma's itself to I believe what real life is mm. once you leave the educational sector I, I entirely agree I mean people often mistake anything that school is all about studying exams and, and obviously part of it is exactly mm. that but a lot of it is also about your social development and if you're an eight or nine year old child and you can look an unknown adult straight in the eye and have a proper conversation without feeling bashful and wanting to hide or going bright red that's a tremendous life skill to have at that Absolutely. age and it sets you up for later in life and um, all of the children that I was talking to on that day had that. They were all quite happy to talk to me about what they'd done, how they'd done it, and what they were going to do with their money. And, and it was really good. Uh, it was a really encouraging experience from my perspective. I think they'll have all gained a lot from it as well. We interviewed, <coughs> excuse me, we interviewed uh, the Shoots and Roots. I think that was the name of the store with the plants. I think it was. Yeah. And I bought a pot of hyacinths from them. It's in our garden as well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they, they were really rather impressive. They were good, uh, and then, then I ambushed her mum, their mum, and got her on there as well. Um, With the back of this, um, mm. they've got another one in July, haven't they? Yes, July 16th. Apparently it's, it's going to be a rolling programme of them, um, so I expect to go and unload another load of, load of cash on, on some goodies uh, in the summer. Yes, yeah, well, it was the first one in London, apparently, so Orpington pioneered it. Well, there we are. Absolutely, there we go. Following this, uh, what aims do you have for your remaining tenure as MP? Uh, Presumably it may well not be a remaining tenure. Hopefully you'll get renewed from your point of view. I hope so. I hope so. Um, I mean, there's, there's a number... I mean, when I got elected, I had a, a number of different goals that, that I wanted to achieve, some in Westminster, some in the constituency, and a lot of that got knocked sideways by COVID. So, I mean, in my first year, my original intention was I was going to try and see as many stakeholders in, in the constituency as I could. So, and, and some of that work has obviously happened. So I've got good links with the police, with fire, with uh, the, the business communities... Um, I've been to, to some of the schools, but not all of them. Um, so a lot of that engagement work needs to continue. Um, my um, constituency surgeries have been uh, suspended since the, the murder of, of David Amos because the police came and assessed the security at my surgery and, and decided there was hardly any. So we, we needed to think about that. I'm going to be restarting those, I hope, in the autumn. Um, because I think it, I, although it's very easy to get in touch with your local member of parliament anyone can do it I mean with social media or email you don't even need to leave your house to get in touch and you will get a response <coughs> um, sometimes people like to come and see their MP and I, I think that's an important part of the job um, but clearly uh, it has to be done in a way that is, is uh, minimises the risk both to myself and also my staff who are also in my surgeries 
So we're, we're looking at ways of doing that and I'm hoping that can be restarted in September. Um, there's obviously a number of local challenges as well. We haven't seen the outcome of the planning application yet. One of the things that I stood on was protecting the Greenbelt. Uh, I think that's very, very important, um, particularly in a constituency like Orpington, where there is plenty of it. Um, so I'm going to be keeping a close eye on that. I'm sure there will be things that come up in the constituency between now and 2024 that I'm not even anticipating that will end up occupying a lot of my time. In Westminster, I need to, uh, I'd like to do more in the chamber than I'm doing at the moment. Um, I'm there every week, but uh, I'd like to get much more involved because I spend a lot of my time on the constituency side of stuff. I need to spend more time, I think, in, in the chamber. Um, and we'll see what happens. Um, so at the moment, I still feel like a rookie in Parliament. I'm still a, um, you know, a newbie. I've still got my learner plate on. Um, you know, I'm just getting used to the role of a member of Parliament. Um, and unfortunately, because COVID took so much of it away, it, it was very. It's, it's funny, really. We, we got when we went back after the summer recess last summer, so last September, September 2021. 20, uh, um, we were voting on something or other, and uh, the lobbies in the House of Commons are like two corridors down the side of the chamber. You go outside the chamber and there are two corridors there. And uh, it was on something that was splitting down party lines, so everyone in my lobby was going to be a Conservative. And I remember seeing another MP who was voting, and uh, I know most of the MPs from my intake. In fact, I know them all, I think. You know, by sight I would know who they were. Uh, and I looked at this guy, and he wasn't, he was obviously not my intake, so he'd been there before me, but was not someone that I would automatically recognise, like Theresa May or Ian Douglas Smith or anything like that. And I remember looking at him thinking, who on earth are you? I've never seen you before, and I've been here for nearly two years. And that's because of the pandemic. Um, it's because we haven't been mixing in the way that we would have mixed. Um, an MP's life is a very social one, so particularly when you're waiting late at night to vote, um, after a while there's only so much you can do in your own office, so you tend to start mingling around, around the palace. Um, and uh, a lot of that had to be cut out because of, of, of COVID. So a lot of the social mixing, uh, getting to know your colleagues, that would have taken place within the first six, seven, eight months, hadn't happened nearly two years in. So it's mostly done now. Um, so getting more comfortable and familiar with the, the Westminster scene as well is, is something that I would like to be doing over the next uh, next couple of years. Right. Uh, I'm out of questions, Eve. You're out of questions. <laughs> and I just kind of wanted to touch, obviously, on what I'm passionate about, the, the whole mental health side of things. Um, I don't know if you recently <coughs> saw uh, Jen McCall, um, Mike McCarthy, who's a journalist, he went into Downing Street recently to talk about suicide mm -hmm. um, and campaigning around that and the awareness. How do you see that being kind of brought about in terms of the awareness doing th uh, having the avenues for people to actually have support mm. well I think focus on mental health is is, is ramped up very significantly in the last um, few years there's I mean there's there's separate funding channels for mental health specifically for mental health now and it's, it's there's a much sharper focus on mental health um, in the National Health Service and in government so I think it's going to be an evolving piece really mm -hmm. um, people didn't really understand mental health um, in the way that they are trying to now. Um, I mean, there is a school of thought, you know, the, the pull yourself together school of thought, um, which actually in some cases uh, is, is about right, but in, in other cases it, it's, it's much more deep than just it's feeling a bit sad right. about something. Um, and I think there's a greater awareness now than there has there's been uh, possibly in our history on that. Um, and I don't think that will change. So I think, you know, it will go the other way. I think there's going to be a lot more time, resource and effort spent on, on the mental health aspect of um, looking after the population's health mm -hmm. than uh, there has been up to date. Yeah, it's just making it sort of accessible to everyone. Because often you hear when people 
aren't sure where to go, mm. where the access is, and um, I mm. think that's where the downfall is, yeah. and then there's that fear around it. Well, that's actually one of the areas, as I've discovered, where both councillors and MPs can come mm. in useful, yeah. because they can provide signposts to local charities, local services, and yeah. things that otherwise your constituents wouldn't know about. Yeah, that's entirely right, because it, it's not always government that has to provide everything. Um, and very often, the voluntary sector, um, the third sector, the charitable sector, uh, will provide invaluable services to people. Um, but a lot of people don't know they're there. Um, and one of the things about community representatives, such as members of parliament or local councillors, is that they can actually signpost people um, to places where they can get help that they need. Um, and that's a large part of our job is sometimes doing that, um, is, is giving people advice on where they can go and do certain things, uh, rather than expecting the government to do everything, which inevitably the government can't and probably shouldn't, because the government uh, doesn't always do things as well as people can do it much closer to the coalface. So you know, local mm. charities, local organisations will know their local area significantly better than somebody sitting in Whitehall perhaps has never visited. Um, and so that's that's a, a key part of the role as well. Fantastic. I think I've got one question though I wanted to ask. Um, Go on, no, it's more just of a fun question really. Yeah. What, um, if you'd like to share with us, what's been, I suppose, the funniest moment for you in your role as an MP? Oh, or, okay. or, or, um, instead of going from the most embarrassing, or go from the most <laughs> funniest. <laughs> I can, I'll share the embarrassing, or you can share an embarrassing moment. Um, there are there are many. I, I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to think what it might be appropriate to say on the radio. Um, while you're, just while while you're thinking, while you're thinking, can have fun as yeah, well. While you're thinking, one, one of your uh, colleagues locally, yeah. off, off air, referred to the presentation of a uh, embossed toilet seat. <laughs> Uh, as part of a trade association, which he was invited to an event of. Uh, that was, that was his I, I can't top that. I'm afraid. I did get an embossed um, glass tankard given to me by a, um, uh, a beer association for some stuff that I'd done with them, which is is quite nice. I think possibly the funniest thing uh, is is one of my colleagues who I won't name. Um, very early on, pre-pandemic, uh, inadvertently wandered into the wrong lobby uh, for for a vote. Uh, because he was chatting to somebody, uh, wandered in. Now, after a certain period of time, um, the normally eight minutes, the speaker or deputy speaker, whoever's in the chair in the chamber, will shout, lock the doors. And what that is, is locking the door of the division lobby. So any MP who's late getting there won't be able to vote. And if any MPs know this, if, if the bell goes, you've got to go straight to the chamber, you know, do not pass go, do not collect £200, go straight there. Um, so nothing deviates from you. Um, so if you're late, that's your fault. Um, but... When the doors are locked, there's no way out, um, and oh gosh. you have to vote. Uh, you know, and, and in those days, we've changed the way you vote slightly now. Now, now you've got a card on a, a card reader, and it will bleep. But then, as now, you are counted out. So, because they do a double check, so you'll have two whips standing, uh, one for the opposition, one for the government, standing by the door, and the doors are set at a 45 degree angle, so only one MP at a time can pass through, and they will literally count you one, two, three, as you go through. Um, so if you're in the wrong lobby, as this particular MP was, you're in real stuck because he was about to vote against the government by mistake. <laughs> um, and so in a panic, he, he apparently, because I was obviously in the right lobby, not the wrong lobby, um, he, he decided that the only way out of this, he, he did look at the windows and wonder whether he could climb out, but actually there was no way of doing that because you're, you're not on the ground floor. You're, so that was a bit hazardous. 
So he went and locked himself in the toilet. There is a toilet, there are toilet facilities, and he went and locked himself in the toilet until the vote took place. (laughs) There we go, following the toilet theme. (laughs) Then went to see the chief whip to apologise for having just abstained in a vote and explaining (laughs) that that was the best he could do under the circumstances because the alternative was voting against. That I thought was quite funny. Uh, Whichever embarrassing thing, not embarrassing or amusing thing Mm. we do, it does seem to have been toilets involved in it somehow, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Right, well, going on here. thank you on that uh, humorous note uh, for ending the uh, interview and filling us in Absolutely. on your background, your role, and uh, a lot of other things besides. Thank you, Gareth. That's a pleasure. Thank you.